Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. This is James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Okay, everybody. I don't know if you guys actually want to hear three episodes about this topic, but you're getting them. And I think this is good. I think this is sort of, we're sort of bringing it all together here. We're bringing together a lot of advice we've never covered on this podcast. We are using Alexander McKendrick's 41 Rules for film students that he came came up with back in the 70s. And we are using it to just tease out a lot of really good advice on filmmaking and a lot of stuff on which we differ. Although I find that we differ a bit less as we're going through these, as we differed from the beginning. I think that we <laughs> we got on each other's nerves too much and now we're, but it's good. We're finding ways to agree on these things. I think that this is a lot of fun and I, th- I hope you'll enjoy it. I hope you'll enjoy these three episodes. And so let's go ahead and jump back in with the next rule um, that we are going to do. So let's go ahead and jump in with number 28. What happens to the end may often be a surprise to the audience and the author, and at the same time, in retrospect, be absolutely inevitable. So this is... I think it's a really awkward way to say a very simple idea. Yes. Well, I mean, this is one of the hardest parts of writing, is the surprising but inevitable ending. Yeah, just write, you should create a finale that is feels surprising but inevitable. There. Yes. But I think that it's interesting that he is sort of supporting Panzer's here to a certain extent, where he's saying that the ending can be a surprise to the author. So you were saying mm-hmm. before that he was saying too much of, oh, if you don't have an ending, then you don't have a beginning. But I think he's saying like, no, you can go ahead and he's saying something that I would think would make you a little happier here, where he's saying like, no, surprise yourself. You know, mm-hmm. you not just surprise your characters by the ending, you can surprise yourself by how it all ends, but you should then realize, like, oh, but it had to end that way. Certainly, I was surprised by the end of Ride of Tornado, but I did feel like, oh, of course it had to end that way. And then I only realized after I had read it, well, I ended up sort of reading it twice and realizing, like, oh, okay, this was all, like, it would have been, it would have been an abomination if the book hadn't ended that way, even though it was totally surprising to me as I read it and horrifying. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, oh, God, don't do that. That's horrific. That's awful. But then I'm like, oh, of course, of course, it's, this whole book was setting it up. Maybe the hardest part of writing, one of the hardest parts of writing, the surprising but inevitable ending. For any of your three novels, were you as the author surprised by the ending of any of your three novels? Yes, definitely for Order of Oddfish. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in fact, like, like the reveal that like Hoagland Shanks is a Belgian prankster, I reveal, I, I figured out as I was writing it in that <laughs> scene. I was like, it, 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 but like, did it then seem inevitable? Once yeah, it seemed inevitable. It? I was like, oh, yeah. of course. Otherwise, like these characters just be like a wacky character with no point to him. And how is the villain going to get back into the city? Uh, mm-hmm. I was like, oh wait, I can solve both these problems here. But for me, it, it, it develops from the writing of it. But like, I, I do feel like the inevitability thing, you definitely want to do that. Like make it feel inevitable, but surprising. Uh, you d- never want to make it feel mechanical. Right. You never well, want to be like, oh, we followed the map and it led here and then we got what we needed. Yeah. Which is like an episode of The Mandalorian. Which is, you know, which is inevitable. It's easy to write an ending that's inevitable. Right. You know? <laughs> they like, get on the train track and they all, go from one station to another. All yeah. we have to do is be inevitable. Okay, got it. Good. I'm, <laughs> I'm a great writer, but, but something that does not... But the trick is to write something that is inevitable, but feels totally surprising to get there and then realizing like, oh, but of course, how could it have been anything I, but... I, I think it relies on maybe there's like a a change of point of view, like, or an, ex, an insight or, an, you know, or somebody, their character changes and that's what causes... They, you never would have thought that that character would have done that because of who they are and then they change in a way and, and then that's the way you get the surprise we also get the inevitability because, of course, that character had to change in that way in order for it to be a story. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, okay, I know we're really trying not to talk about Star Wars, but, you know, I think that, you know, it's absolutely insane to think that George Lucas insists that he didn't know that Darth Vader was Luke's father when he wrote the first Star Wars movie. And mm-hmm. it's like, talk about surprising but inevitable. <laughs> like, you know, like, knowing what is revealed in the second movie you watch the first movie and it's like it is so overwhelmingly set up in the first movie that he is his father. Yeah, also and... because like isn't doesn't isn't Darth Vader like <laughs> Dutch for dark father? Yes it is. <laughs> so <laughs> so but that was that's a great example of surprising but inevitable uh, even and where the author surprised himself although at this point he had co-authors so it it all becomes much murkier. Mm-hmm. But they all discovered what was inherently the the inevitable um, twist that was nevertheless surprising to the, yeah, and this to is why the you have to, main person who wrote it. This is why you have to trust your gut and just kind of like 
do that pantsing writing because you're you're like if you make a scaffolding all ahead of time in which like everything is already planned out you're only using your conscious mind you, you know but like if you kind of like let it go a little bit like all this kind of weirdness can come in that you can pivot off of and and, and, and you'll find the stuff in it that you didn't even know that you knew. So the only writing I'm doing right now is, familiar. one of my New Year's resolutions was to stop taking sleeping pills, and I soon found that I was just having way too many dreams without the sleeping pills. And mm. then I decided, well, I need to start a dream journal then. Mm. And I, so the only, like, creative work I'm doing right now is I am very, very, very assiduously rushing downstairs every morning and writing in my dream journal. And I'm finding I'm not the best writer in the world, you know, because I'm <laughs> writing just amazing stuff every day, you know, and I'm discovering all sorts of interesting things about myself. I always had a sense that I've told people in the past that I've only ever had nightmares. I've never had any dreams that weren't a nightmare. And it's, but I'm discovering that's just because that was the only ones I remembered and that I, I tend to have a lot of anxiety in my dreams. Almost all my dreams are anxiety dreams in one way or another. But I I don't get killed in my dreams as often as I remembered getting killed in my dreams. You died in your dreams? dreams? See, that's the thing. is People are always like, oh, you never die in your dreams. Or you even get like kids saying, like, oh, if you die in your dreams, you die in real life. And I'm like, who are these people who aren't getting constantly killed in their dreams? Like, <laughs> like, like I'm, I get murdered in my dreams frequently, and then I'll go on to another part of the dream, and someone will be like, didn't you get murdered like two dreams ago? And I'll be like, ah, and then I'll suddenly die. It's so funny you should mention this, because I've never had a dream in which I die until a couple days ago. <laughs> um, I was standing on the rooftop of a building in downtown Chicago, and I was, I was on the phone with somebody, like, important to me. And I was looking at one of the buildings in kind of in the distance, also downtown, and it just started falling apart. Like, like just, like, the parts was, like, slipping off and the yeah. building was collapsing. And I, was, and I, like, held the phone. I was like, oh, my gosh, look at this. And the people were yelling in a 9-11 way around me. And then, like, that seemed to have caused the building next to it to start falling apart. And I was standing on a building next to it. I was like, oh, my God, I see what's going to happen. And then another building fell apart. Another, and then, I, then it hit my building, and my building started to you know fall and i was looking down at the ground and like i'm on the building i, I say oh my god this is it i'm going to die these are the last couple moments of my life and the building falls and i, I hit the ground and it's just darkness and it, it, darkness for a couple seconds like and i just had to will myself to wake up and, and then i woke up and that's <laughs> the only time i've ever died in my dream but like, it was like and I, I had this feeling like so this is death like it's all dark and i'm still thinking oh my god this is awful um, I at one point in high school, I accidentally ended up in a class of like how to survive in the real world if you're not going to college, mm -hmm. and like I was supposed to test out of this class, but something like went wrong, and I didn't test and you out went of the to class. College. And then well, something went really well, I guess wrong. You had to I go to college, college then. But, uh, <laughs> you failed this class. But and so I would just fall asleep every day in class because the class was so clearly not for me, and then I would die in my dream every day in class. And I would, like, get shot in the head, and then I would, like, suddenly oh, wow. my head would, would shoot back up out of, off of my desk as so I would be shot in the head and wake up. you die in your dream. Sometimes in my dreams, I do see what happens after I die. And sometimes the dreams abruptly ends when I die. But anyway, so I, but it's been so good for me to tap into my subconscious again. And a lot of ways, the pure opposite of what I talk about in my book, and a lot of ways, the pure opposite of what I talk about, of my advice, and just dealing entirely with subconscious. So we, I was going to bring this up last time when we were talking about dreams and you were saying dreams are so powerful. Well, I think I'm going to get something useful out of all these, out of all this dream journaling I've been doing. But for now, it just feels like a creative outlet in and of itself. And it's been absolutely fascinating. Also, probably one of the reasons it's so like liberating for you is that there's no stakes. There's no like th thing is like, okay, I'm working towards something here. You're just merely trying to write down as best you can what you remember. And it's not necessarily for, you know, oh, this is part of my great work. Yeah. There is a, some theory, I remember, like, turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, uh, um, <laughs> in which they, uh, they, this person has a theory that if you take, have a dream journal and you start writing down, you know, uh, what happened in your dreams, you're going to find these recurring motifs in your dreams, these the That's what I'm doing. plot yeah. elements and things like that, and it's going to tell you something about, like, like, like some kind of psychic information about the future and the past. I mean, what really happens is that when we write down our dreams, we 
can't help but falsify it. Oh, yeah. And we start making it into a story where it was just, like, and you can feel yourself lying as you're writing it down, that you're yeah. not quite getting it quite right. However, that's fine, because it's launched you into something. Yeah. Which is good. And, yeah. and so what those, those correspondences that everybody was seeing, probably was just an artifact of, like, you know, their sensibility writing down these random images they were getting in their head and not like, oh, their subconscious is trying to tell them something about like always having a silver key uh, on, on, on a black uh, pillow in every dream, you know? I think that there's, I think there's genuine secrets in my dreams that I'm trying to discover and intuit. I forget how we ended up here. Anyway, let's go ahead and move on to number 29. Number 29, character progression. When you've thought out what kind of character your protagonist will be at the end, start him or her as the opposite kind of person at the beginning. E.g., Oedipus, who starts out arrogant and ends up humiliated. Hamlet, who is indecisive at the start and ends up heroic. Well, I don't think he ends up that heroic. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he, he kills almost everybody. Yeah. And, and, and they, like, for what? It's a tragedy. And the heroic, he doesn't, does this guy understand Hamlet at all? Certainly, Romeo and Juliet, like, once you realize six people end up dead because of this romance, like, it's very hard not to heap those bodies on the heads of Romeo and Juliet, and it's very hard not to heap all of the dead people on the head of Hamlet, who ends up doing something that is far from heroic. Like, finally, the person he wants revenge on dies last after all of these other people are dead. Like, even just his college buddies. <laughs> yes. He kills them. You know, <laughs> why? Gil Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is just like, yeah, do it, England. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I, so I gotta say, of all of McKendrick's 41 roles, this is the one I disagree with the most. Mm. I completely disagree with the A to Z hero. Mm. I talk about, on my blog, I compare two different Natalie Portman movies. I compare V for Vendetta and Black Swan, and how, in the graphic novel, V for Vendetta, you have this woman who has been absolutely horribly abused by the state, her, her entire life has been reduced to prostitution, and then gets rescued by a terrorist. As a prostitute is going to be assaulted and probably killed by some cops on her first night on the job. And then she is rescued by a terrorist who then turns her into his protege terrorist. And in the movie, they were like, well, we've read McKendrick's Worlds and we know that the hero should go from A to Z. So we begin with, even though you're living in this fascist England, she begins as this like kooky romantic comedy heroine who like has <laughs> who has like is working her dream job in the big city as a intern on a tv show and has a crush on her boss and then she then ends up still ending up as the terrorist taking over from v at the end of the movie and it's just inane it's so stupid and it was just clearly because they were like oh well she has to go from a to z she's gotta you know begin totally fine instead of beginning in this very wretched state as she did in the graphic novel but then i compare that to Black Swan, I like Black Swan, it would have been very easy to do Black Swan as an A to Z movie of a movie where she is a happy-go-lucky ballerina at the beginning, and mm -hmm. then this horrible thing happens to her, and she gets this role that makes her evil from nothing, takes her from being totally sweet and kind to being this evil person, and, you know, with this abusive director who is ruining her life. And instead, she is already pretty far gone. Her life is already ruined. Her life is already, she is on a knife's edge, and she is at Y at the beginning of that movie. That is a Y to Z movie. And I like, I prefer Y to Z movies to A to Z movies. And I, I think this is just very much not true. I think it maybe it depends on the length of the thing, because you like Breaking Bad, and that's definitely an A to Z thing, right? No, it really is not. It really is not. Okay, I think that's okay. an excellent can, example. Can you, give me a, can you tell me why it might seem that I'm right, and then tell me why I'm wrong? But first tell me why it, seem, I mean, it might seem that I'm right. This, it, Breaking Bad was pitched to AMC by Vince Gilligan as... What if Mr. Chips became Scarface? It was pitched as a classic A to Z story. And it was and to be sure, it starts out you have a mild mannered chemistry t high school teacher who's kind of like you know doesn't have any money and and he's has no respect or anything like that. And then he goes at the end and he's like this big criminal who has a lot of money and respect and he and he's done all kinds of terrible things before he didn't do anything that that bad. Right. It's so that that total, seems like an A to Z, right? Total A to Z story. And if if he had gotten who he he pitched to them the story and they're like okay we think we can make this if you can get one of these two actors to star in it if you can get matthew broderick or john cusack to star in this show <laughs> then we'll go ahead and make this show and 
I, John Cusack may have been able to pull it off, but Matthew Broderick, if this had been starring Matthew Broderick, then it would have been an absolute fucking disaster. And he's like, no, I want the dad from Malcolm in the Middle. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, like, he knew he was like, a like... great character actor. Did, did you, did, just, just sidebar, did you see the, the Music Man with Matthew Broderick? No, I didn't. Robert Preston in the original Music Man has a feral, mean glint in his eye, which is necessary to be yeah. that. But Matthew Broderick is so just a nice guy. <laughs> Even as Ferris Bueller, the only reason Ferris Bueller works is because he doesn't have a feral yeah. glint in his I agree. eye. Yeah. And so, but Brian Cranston, on the other hand, Brian Cranston is very capable much of a feral glint. Has a feral glint in his eye. And I think that, you know, that's one of my all time favorite pilots. And I think he is totally, he has psychosis within him already well, as a pilot. He does knock out the knees from behind somebody at the yeah. clothes store who's like, like making fun of his son. Well, and, right? That happens in the very first episode, right? You know, at the beginning, he is super, even before that, he is super, super kind person. He is excellent with his students in chemistry class. He is excellent to his disabled son. But then at one point, you know, he drives his disabled son to school and drops him off and is, you know, hangs the little thing on his rearview mirror saying that, like, I have a disabled person in the car. That's why I'm able to park in this disabled spot to drop off my Mm -hmm. son. And then he's driving home and he suddenly looks up and he sees it there and he suddenly grabs it and shoves it in his glove compartment Mm -hmm. and the glove compartment won't shut and he starts just desperately trying to slam it closed. And that is one of those few moments where we see the crack in the facade mm-hmm. in the pilot of, like, he is very loving to his disabled son, but he resents him and is embarrassed by him. And when he isn't, when his son is not around needing love, he is going to try to violently put away the sign that his son is disabled. And there is so much... One of the later seasons of that show, I forget what the tagline was. It was like dangerously volatile or something like that. Like there's so much volatility packed into that first episode. And I think it's something that is was pitched as an ABC show. It is something that sort of presents itself as an ABC show, but was actually a Y to Z show. Well, how about this? Maybe the Y to Z were like his interior things happening, but the material circumstances were A to Z. Yes. So maybe that's... a an important distinction. Maybe a satisfying story is when somebody goes from A to Z in their material circumstances, but Y to Z in, you know, their... Because you have to, you have to see that it was all possible from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think it also has to do with length of the show. Like, I think we can believe somebody going from, you know, like Q to Z, if it's like five seasons. And, and we actually want them. We don't want them to go from Y to Z if it's like five seasons of a show. We want to have some progression and some steps along the way. I think even if you look at V for Vendetta, you know, V for Vendetta, it's a long graphic novel that takes her from Y to Z, you know, because it's very, very hard to become a terrorist mastermind. You know, it takes Uh a big, like the whole, that whole graphic novel is about just what it takes to cause someone to really break bad, <laughs> to have them become mm-hmm. a terrorist mastermind. It's this very long Y to Z journey. And then the movie was like trying to cram into under two hours this A to Z journey. Well, that's what I mean, and, the length of the piece. Yeah. It was interesting that Better Call Saul went longer than Breaking Bad did, because you would think Breaking Bad more of an A to Z story than Better Call Saul. It would take longer to tell. But they realized they could only, that that story had to have a certain velocity to it that um, Better Call Saul didn't have to have. But I think they're both both absolutely brilliant shows. But anyway, we've gotten off topic. This is one where I completely reject his advice, but you you are finding some some nuance to help to help integrate his advice into what I'm saying. Yes. Okay. Let's go on to number thirty. Most stories with a strong plot are built on the tension of cause and effect in all caps. Each incident is like a domino that topples forward to collide with the next in a sequence which holds the audience in a grip of anticipation. Quote, so what happens next? Unquote. Each scene presents a small crisis that, as it is resolved, produces a new uncertainty. So, I then talk about heroes should expect to resolve the plot in every scene. They only fail to do so because of a constant stream of reversals. Maybe not every single scene, but, you know. Yes. Not every single scene, but generally speaking, again, if you're writing an action movie, which not every movie is, and not every novel is, certainly off, like, there's nothing worse than when it's like, we've got to do these 10 tasks, and then we'll win. It's like, 
no, I mean, a good action movie is like, we have to do this one thing and then we'll win. And then it's like, it fails. Right. And then it's like, all right, now we have to do this one thing and we will win. And that's a much better structure rather than this whole idea of, we know the story isn't going to end for another 10 weeks and we just have to kill time until we get there. Right. But that's like, the we, worst. We, we accept that there's going to be steps along the way, like in true grit, like when she's trying to get Rooster Cogburn to work for her. She oh, knows I love that just movie. the minute that she gets Rooster Cogburn, it's not going to solve the problem. Right. You, you know what I mean? Like, she knows there's going to be stuff happening after that. Yeah. So, like, she doesn't expect to solve the whole plot in every scene. Or even, like, in every yes, other I'm scene. Or even every three scenes. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? So, I, I mean, I... But she certainly I, expects to solve it a lot quicker than she does. Right, right. But I, so, I, I just think when you say heroes should expect to resolve the plot in every scene, I would take issue with that advice. <laughs> yes, you can take issue with that advice. I, I invite you to do so. But yeah, it's a good thing to remember in the apartment, in anything that we've talked about, there should be a sense that, that each scene... I mean, it's funny. I talk about at one point on the blog how you don't want to have the three hitmen thing where it's like the bad guy has sent three henchmen after me. I must deal with them one by one and then deal with the big bad guy. And I was totally forgetting about that. Like that's the structure of the born identity, which I love. Mm -hmm. It helps in born identity that he does not know there are three bad guys. He mm -hmm. does not know that three henchmen have been sent after him. He thinks each one is the one he has to defeat. And then he will be able to get away and go on with his life forever. And we know that there are three bad guys he will have to defeat, and then he will have to defeat the main bad guy. If it was him, I think it would be dreadful. If he knew that, I think it would be a dreadful movie. I think like, if every single scene is related to the last by cause and effect, I think like by strict cause and effect, I think it might start to feel mechanical. I think another way you can get from one scene to another is just like some thematic kind of like parallel. You know, something, okay, here's something here. Okay, here's something similar that's happening over here. Oh, yeah. And we, we don't necessarily know how they're related, and then it kind of comes together over time. But if the idea of, like, if he says each incident is a domino that topples forward, and then the next scene, and the next scene, and each one is, like, just cause and effect related to the last one, yeah, I can imagine, like, a heist movie or something working that way, but I can't imagine, like, this kind of mechanical... Like, I think oh, so sure. many of these things that he's saying is like, yeah, great, for, like, a Marvel movie, maybe, you know, but uh, not I, for every story. I mean, this yeah, is kind of talking... For... For the man in the white suit, for the lady killers, for Sweet Smell of Success, this is not just true of action movies. This is true of most yeah. comedies. This is true of most dramas. But you don't have to limit yourself to it. No, you certainly don't. And it, you know, it'd be dreadful if every single scene in your in what you write is cause and effect and each one is just a domino, as he says, falling from the previous scene and the characters never get out from under this cascade of events. It's terrible. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on to number 31. Number 31, drama is expectation mingled with uncertainty. Didn't he say something similar to this Yeah, earlier? there was something very similar to this earlier. And then I say you have to establish the rules of your script so that your audience can play along. Defying expectations is easy, but creating expectations is hard. Tone is all about setting expectations and resetting expectations. And good writing is all about expectations. It's all about, first of all, I know what my audience's preconceived expectations are based on my genre or based on my title or based on the cover or based on the poster. I know what, how to then defy those expectations. I know how to set expectations, defy expectations, and then reset expectations. Beginning writers often think like, well, I want to defy expectations. I want to have a movie in which the hero gets killed on page 10. That's going to defy expectations. And how it's really easy to defy expectations. And the hardest thing to do is to create expectations. To go like, you know, I'm going to make the reader think they know how this is going to end. And then I'm going to set their expectations. And then I'm going to blow them away when I defy those expectations. And that is the heart of really difficult writing. That is the heart of really advanced writing is set, defy, reset. But also another thing that you said, you don't want people to say, I'm so surprised if they did that. You want them to say, oh, I knew he would do that. Yeah. Because you're setting the expectation that like, this character does things in a certain way. Maybe they're going to surprise you in like, the way that he goes about doing it. But, like, but, but when he does it, it's like, ah. Like, even if, even if the, the viewer couldn't have written it themselves, like that he would do it in exactly that way, they feel this kind of recognition. Like, ah, yes, that's a total thing that, you know, uh, I don't know, Sam Malone would do. <laughs> I talk about in my second book about, like, you know, already by 10 pages into Little Women, like, we understand all four of these characters so well, and mm -hmm. we're saying, like, oh, that's so Amy. Mm -hmm. Like, that, and, and we love that. We love reading it and seeing, like, oh, Amy's doing her Amy thing again. Oh, Amy. 
Mm -hmm. So setting expectations. Yeah. So like there's so much work done just in those first 10 pages to set your expectations. And then that's all we want. We want our expectations to be set. And then we want those expectations to be largely paid off. But they want Amy to act like Amy. And then we're surprised. Then Amy ends up with Laurie and we're like, oh, that's so shocking. Yeah. So that's expectations mingled with uncertainty is what he's saying. Yeah. You know, that's the uncertainty. It's like, oh my God, he ended up with Laurie. Well, I guess people are more mysterious than our expectations of them. But, you know, like Snape and Harry Potter, like, oh, that's so Snape. Oh, that's so Snape. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, I never expected that of Snape. <laughs> but it's satisfying because all that time you're saying, that's so Snape. Yes. And it also, it feels inevitable because, you know, finding out what was going on with Snape makes sense of every, even though those novels were not written backwards. He was mm-hmm. writing the seventh one, unable to rewrite the first six. But they worked. It was amazing how well they worked. And then it was amazing. They were even making the movies of those before all the novels had been published. I sort of had to remind myself of that the other day. I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, did they, when they made the first movie, had they, they didn't know how the whole thing was going to end? Well, they did because Alan Rickman said to J.K. Rowling, and I think I read this in an interview somewhere, that he was like, I, I, I don't know if I can play this character. I, I can't find my into it. She was like, okay, I'll tell you the secret of him. Uh, and then she told him, but you can't tell anybody else. And then, oh, and I, I'm pretty sure this is correct. I'm pretty sure I read this somewhere. And they said, okay, I can play this character now mm-hmm. because I know his secret sadness. And I think that was excellent of him to do that because he, uh, he created a performance that feels like he knew where it was going when it began, even though he seemingly did not. But you're saying he secretly did, which makes total sense. Um, and it's a sign of him being great actors. Okay, so let's go and go into number 32. Number 32, a shooting script is not a screenplay, screaming all in caps. The beginning screenwriter should be discouraged from trying to invent stories in screenplay format. I don't know what he's talking about. So you got to keep in mind, this was in the days of typewriters, and screenplay format was extremely perverse, and it was very, very hard to compose stories in screenplay format. And he's saying, you know, write a treatment, dude. Write a prose story. Write it out longhand or type in a document. Do not try to compose in the perverse screenplay format. And this was generally true until screenwriting software was invented. And then it became easy enough to now I actually enjoy composing. But even then, I tend not to do it. Um, that, I haven't written a screenplay in many years, but I would tend to write it as a prose piece first. But that was unusual. Most people compose in screenwriting Isn't software. Isn't that what Tarantino but, does? Like he kind of writes like the equivalent of like a novel? Uh, yeah, I think I've heard that. But uh, anyway, this is, this is very specific to film school. Mm-hmm. We can move on. Let's go ahead and move on to number 33, a foil character on caps is a figure invented to ask the questions to which the audience want answers. Asking the questions may be more important than having the answer. I mean, sometimes a foil character in that case is just the main character. Like, that's Harry Potter, that's Luke Skywalker. They're asking the questions that the audience wants answers to. I point out at one point how important it is to those books, and even more important to the movies, that Harry is not a reader. And (laughs) that Harry never once goes to the library and looks up anything himself and reads about it. He Uh always just asks Hermione to sum everything up. (laughs) He's an executive. If Harry had been a reader in the books, that could have worked. But then it would have completely killed the movies yeah. if, like, we would have seen after scene of Harry looking up stuff in the library and just watching him read stuff and then <laughs> having to have voiceover or something where he describes what he's reading. But yeah. it's perfect for the movies that yeah. he's not a reader in the books and that he constantly has to have stuff summed up for him. But, um, yeah, he is totally a foil character in those movies. But sometimes it is good to have a foil character who is not the main character. And I think this is an excellent point that McKendrick makes, saying that asking the question may be more important than having the answer. That often it's Mm -hmm. just important to have people ask questions on screen or in a book, and then you don't need to have anybody answer it. I mean, obviously the most obvious question is, what the hell are we going to do now? But, But really the question of, like, what could the bad guy be thinking? And then you don't need to have characters go, like, well, he could be thinking this, or he could be mm-hmm. thinking this. You just want to put the question out there, like, what could the bad guy be thinking? I say here, as I point out here, it can be very powerful to have an unanswered question hang over the story. Speaking of Matthew Broderick, I talk about how at the beginning of election, he is talking to his class, and he says, what's the difference between morals and ethics? And then the bell rings, and they're dismissed, mm-hmm. and they don't get a chance to answer it. Or in the beginning, and then, of course, the whole story becomes about the answer to that. You know, the whole story becomes about what's the difference between morals and ethics. Or in Bullets Over Broadway, begins with them going like, if you could save a person or the last copy of William Shakespeare, which would you save? Mm-hmm. And then the whole movie becomes the answer to that question. Unanswered questions are tremendously powerful, and I think that's a good piece of advice that's buried in here. All right, let's go and go on to number 34, negative action. Something not happening needs to be dramatized in positive action terms. You show something starting to happen, which then is stopped. 
I think this is excellent advice. I think that it is very hard to show something not happening. And uh, it is very important to show things that are not happening. Mm -hmm. And it is, this is one reason why objects are so good. Why if a guy is hitting on a girl and she gives him her number, then you can show him, consider calling her by picking up the number and maybe picking up the phone and then deciding, no, I'm not going to mm -hmm. pick up the phone and I'm going to set the number down. You know, this is the sort of thing where once you think about it, you see it all the time. Once you become aware of this, like, how do you show something not happening? How do you show somebody considering, consider calling somebody and then not do it? It can be done well. It can be done artfully. It can be done extremely clunkily. Clunkily is a clunky word, but it can, but it, it must be done. And obviously novels don't have to do this. Novels can just tell us he considered doing something and he didn't do it. But movies cannot, unless you have God all of the voiceover in recent Scorsese movies, which is just complete abdication of the filmmaker's you're just responsibility. Right now. If you're avoiding voiceover, then you have to come up with ways to dramatize it. I think this is an excellent point. Yeah, I mean, n nothing to add. Nothing to add. Okay, let's go ahead and go on to number 35. Two elements of suspense are half as suspenseful as one. Aristotle, oh, I know you love Aristotle, James. Aristotle's principle of unity means that one dramatic tension should dominate. All others are subordinate to it. I agree with this. I talk about in my second book about how a book is a friend who you have invited over to discuss all of the things that are going on in your life. A movie is a stranger who you have agreed to meet with about one problem and you do not want them to discuss anything else than the one problem and anything else that they mention you want to fit within the umbrella of that one problem. And I think that that is the heart of movie making. I think this is not true for books. I think this is very true of movies. I mean, I think, but even in books, it's generally true. Two elements of suspense are half as suspenseful as one. That the more we are focused on one problem at a time, the stronger the storytelling is. I don't know. I've seen a lot of uh, climaxes that like cross cut between, you know, two or three different climaxes at once, and they all kind of interweave and come together. So much of cinema goes back to, unfortunately. D.W. Gorse's First Nation, this clan recruitment film, <laughs> you could say it's the serpent in the Eden of filmmaking. It is the source of so many of our ideas about filmmaking, and it was such a deeply evil movie. But one of the things that movies got from that is so many movies, and this goes all the way up to The Fugitive, this goes so many all the way up to so many things, is about the double chase. Someone is chasing and being chased at the same time. And... D.W. Griffith's favorite novelist was Charles Dickens. And you look at Charles Dickens, frequently there is a double chase going on in Charles Dickens. And, you know, who, so you sort of get the same, like, D.W. Griffith invented cinema, and he got it from Charles Dickens. So well, Charles Dickens double chase is sort of, Dickens? the ending of Tale of Two Cities is a double chase. You've got chasing while being chased, sort of. He's chasing who, like, Darnay is being oh, chased I by? <laughs> I was afraid you'd City ask me Carton, about this. Or, like, like, Defarge is doing something? What's going on? I don't remember. I haven't, I haven't read that book in a long, long okay, time. Les Miserables, let's say. Um, I think, like, you've got yes. uh, Javert is chasing Jean Valjean, and Jean Valjean is going after uh, Cosette's lover, Marius. Yes. Right? Th there's a double chase. A double chase. Yes. So this seems to completely contradict what he's saying. Two elements of suspense are half suspenseful as yeah, one. Yeah, I don't get this. Aristotle's principle of unity means that one dramatic tension should dominate. Maybe he's totally wrong here. But, I mean, I hate to say it, but like the end of Return of the Jedi is great. You got three <laughs> different climaxes going on at once. But they all come together beautifully. They're all, yeah, but they're they're all overlayered on top of each other beautifully. Yeah. They're all reacting to each other. Although it... There's three different goals. Yeah. There's three different things causing suspense. There's three different situations. But and... they want to shut down the the force field, so that... That's what's happening on Endor. Yes. So right. that... And, and the, so that Lando the, can blow up the Death Star. Yes. So but, all, but all, at the same time, unbeknownst to any of them, yeah, Luke, Luke is, is trying to save the, the soul Star of his trans, father. Yeah, which has nothing to do with either of right. those two goals. But it's yeah. the most important of them. Yeah. Um, but like, I think it's... Uh, I, I, but Luke is also stomping the, the Emperor from shutting down the entire plan. So everything is in motion. They're throwing the yeah. emperor down the I shaft guess, or not. It's I not guess that doesn't anything. change anything, does it? No. no. Okay. Yes, you're totally wrong, Alexander Kendrick. Um, go jump in a lake. Okay. <laughs> Let's go on to number 36. Confrontation scene is the obligatory scene that the audience feel they have been promised and the absence of which may reasonably be disappointing. I talk about in my first book 
no, I'm not sure I made it in my first book. It may have been cut about the gut punch scene and about how like subtext is great and it's okay to have scene after scene of subtext where they're not talking about how they're really feeling. And then they want to have the scene where they do. And suddenly one character just lays into another character with a gut punch and says, here's what you haven't been talking about. Here's what we haven't been saying. And I am going to slap you in the face. I'm going to punch you in the gut, uh, maybe just figuratively. And I am going to hit you with the truth. Here's and why you're a bad father. Here's why you're here's a bad father. Here's all the stuff that I meant that I, I've been holding back. Yes. Uh, um, and, and now like, the, the circumstances have gotten to the point where I'm finally going to say it to you because our situation has gotten that dire. Yes. It's not going to be the first like scene of a movie. Oh, God, no. I, mean, <laughs> I haven't don't. seen it, but like, is it Marriage Story about a lot of gut punch scenes? But yeah, Marriage Story is like an all gut punch movie. And <laughs> it starts with gut punch and just goes from gut punch <laughs> yes, to gut punch. goes from gut punch to gut punch to gut punch. But that's kind of like written on the tin, right? Like that, <laughs> yeah. that is what, yeah, that is what it's, it should have is promised. It should have been called Divorce Story. I love Marriage Story. I absolutely love that movie. That was my favorite movie of the year that year. But most movies should not be Marriage Story. Most movies should not be constant gut punch stories. Usually, you want to have, ideally, I would say just one. If you're writing something that has gut punch after gut punch after gut punch, then. It's probably not going to work. Marriage story works. Certain stories work. But generally speaking, you want subtext in most scenes. You want most scenes to be about, oh, we're not saying the real issue here. And we're dealing with other things. And there's something that's really going on behind this. And it's only going to get laid out in maybe one scene. I think that's what he's saying here. A confrontation scene. The obligatory scene the audience feels they have been promised. The absence of which may reasonably be disappointing. Maybe, I think that's what he meant. So I think this is a good point for him to make that you need to be aware that there is they're going to want to see at least one confrontation scene right but it's it's not necessarily the one that they feel that they have been promised okay all right so let's go ahead and go on to number 37 number 37 what you leave out is as important as what you leave in i think that's absolutely true i think that it takes a lot of courage to leave things out i talk about how there is a lot of stuff that doesn't seem to make sense in vertigo whereas everything makes sense in north by northwest and how there's stuff that, like, they could have gone ahead and explained in Vertigo, like, how she gets out of the hotel and instead we just sort of have to invent our own explanation. But that it can be more powerful. You know, I talk about how there was a student of mine at Columbia who said, like, how can Vertigo be a better movie than North by Northwest when North by Northwest is so perfect? And I'm like, that's, that's the problem with North by Northwest. It's a perfect movie. And they didn't leave anything out. And everything is left in. Everything clicked together like a jigsaw puzzle, whereas Vertigo has things that are left out, and it's a greater movie, because as I say in my somewhat clever formulation of this, depth is found in holes, and it's true. If you want depth, you need a hole, and sometimes that means plot holes. Sometimes that just means not even a plot hole, but just like something completely unexplained, and I think that just leaving things out of stories takes a lot of courage, and another thing I talked about in the vlog one time is how Graham Yost talked about how he learned to write by writing on the Nickelodeon show, Hey Dude, there'd be a scene going on and then the character would show up unexpectedly and they'd be like, oh, unexpected character, where did you come from? And the character would go like, oh, I was doing this, 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 and this. And they're like, oh, okay. And then another writer who was like a grizzled old veteran was like, you could have just had him say, I'll tell you later. <laughs> and I think of that all the time because that happens in movies all the time where yeah. someone shows up and they're like, unexpected character where do you come from and he <laughs> says i'll tell you later here's the thing and then yeah. he'll launch the story into a new direction and it's like oh i love it uh -huh. <laughs> i just it's so much better I mean, sometimes when characters say i'll tell you later sometimes if it's something that you really care about and the character says that's a story for another time <laughs> it can be infuriating <laughs> but uh, even then i think it's good even yeah. then i think it's audiences absolutely they think they hate it and they actually love it when the characters you know when there's just characters that are more holes well, then they can than, make lore than... about it too yes oh they, exactly they can do that's, fan fiction yes but, so like, there's two ways that like um you're saying what you leave out is as important as what you live in one is like you can create unexpected depth like you know kind of like in a mysterious way with vertigo but it can also be like oh here's an opportunity for fan fiction or people's <laughs> imaginations go wild but it's also like we don't need to see every step of like you know i think i'm gonna go on a road trip and they take out their map and they plan it and they, they, they get their snacks together and they call their <laughs> friends. You know, you could just say, I'm going to go on a road trip and you cut to the car, the convertible is full. You know, they're all like going down the highway like, we're on that road to Tuscaloosa with my fat baby Carmelou. You, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, exactly. you, can, you can cut from one to the other and not do all of the steps in between. And maybe that, that's the mo most prosaic way. Maybe like the, yeah, the Vertigo that's the way version. Is, is like is the most 
I don't know, arty way, but you know, I, I'm, I'm a meat and potatoes man of the people. And I, I think like what he meant was that. But I think that, I think it, it's all the same. I mm-hmm. think that just no matter what you're doing, having the courage to go like, I'm going to leave that out. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, this thing, trust that, the audience, this thing that the I holes. think the audience is going to demand. I, you know, even something I'm sure the audience is going to demand it, I'm going to deny it to the audience. That takes a lot of courage. Yeah, even, actually, even bolder thing would be, I'm going to go on a road trip and cut to the, on the side of the road, and they've got a flat tire, <laughs> yeah. and they're all standing around it. You know what I mean? Like, that, exactly. that is a satisfying cut. Yes. Um, uh, okay, so let's go ahead and go on to number 38. Screenplays are structure, structure, structure. So I disagree with this one. I say, after I say this, this is Hollywood gospel, but I feel it isn't universally true. If you're naturally gifted at character creation, but you have to learn structure, then it can seem this way. But I have the opposite problem. I've always had a strong, inherent understanding of structure, but bad instincts on character creation. So for me, screenplays are character, character, character. As I put it elsewhere, we teach what we most need to learn. To me, I am constantly struggling with character. I'm never struggling with structure. To me, I'm like, nope, screenplays are all about character. It's all about character, 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 because that's what I need to focus on. I don't need to focus on structure. I think that McKendrick, I think McKendrick is revealing to himself, is revealing his own flaws here when he says screenplays are structure, structure, structure. I think he's revealing that that's what he struggles with and that if you were struggling with character, they would seem like they were character, character, character to him. I think whenever somebody's saying something three times in all caps, they're revealing more about themselves <laughs> than they are about the state of, of the world. Yes. Uh, they, 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 there's something slightly hysterical, you, you know, about, like, yelling something three times. Yes, indeed. Uh, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> um. Location, location, location. <laughs> yes. Number 39, never cast for physical attributes. This is obviously strictly filmmaking. This is nothing to do with novel writing, but mm-hmm. it is totally true. I learned this lesson the hard way over and over again. You see this all the time in movies. You look at movies like The Graduate, where they cast for how he feels instead of how he would actually look. You see this in a movie that, like, Caught, I talk about here, where clearly the part was written for, like, a Marilyn Monroe type, and instead they cast Barbara Bogettis because she doesn't feel like a, you know, bimbo. She feels mousy, so they cast Barbara Bogettis from Vertigo instead of Marilyn Monroe. In oh, the was that the best friend in Vertigo? Yes, the best friend in Vertigo. Why didn't he hang out with her? She was <laughs> She's great. Awesome. She's she, like, great. painted a picture <laughs> yes. for him. Like, the other woman was just, like, mysterious and just <laughs> hanging out, but she was, like, funny. She had a cool apartment. She had a cool job, you yeah. know, in, like, 1960 or whenever it was set. She was funny. Like, I don't know. The, uh, he really blew it. He really blew it. I would totally go for Barbara Belgettis in that movie. But obviously, the most obvious example is how The Graduate was written for Robert Redford, and clearly this is supposed to be a blonde, himbo character who, although little moms want to screw, but he doesn't feel like Robert Redford on the inside. He feels like a nebbishy character on the inside, and so they cast Dustin Hoffman, which was perfect, even though it doesn't really make sense that all the moms would want to screw him. I think that never cast for physical attributes. My movie, Menace, I, there was a great actor who we auditioned who, you know, just did not look like, again, this sort of like, you know, it was supposed to be sort of a blandly handsome guy. So I cast a blandly handsome guy. And guess what? He was bland. And he was bland in the movie. And the guy who had a lot more character in his face, who I was like, oh, I don't want to cast him. He looks like a character actor. He doesn't mm-hmm. look like a leading man. It would That movie would have been a thousand times better. All right. So let's go ahead and go on to number 40. Number 40. Action, all caps, speaks louder than words. I refuse to discuss this point. This is the most trite cliche. Please, can we move on to number 41? Which is also a complete trite cliche. So wow, we should wow, just be done we're, for we're, the evening. We're, we're, we're really, like, building up to a climax here. <laughs> yeah. We are, <laughs> we are, we are, so number 41 is every character is important. Which is true. Which is very true. Every character is important. And certainly... If you're making a film, this is better than, it is far more true in a film than in a novel that every character is important because you have to actually cast. (laughs) You have to cast people in the parts and Uh people get really, oh my God. So when I was hired to write the adaptation of When You Reach Me, the uh, Newbery winning novel I wrote the screenplay adaptation for, like the, the producer just hated my guts in the beginning and just said like, you know, she's like, I love this novel. You're not allowed to change anything in the novel. Okay, go write an adaptation. And uh-huh. I quickly realized, like, she meant it. She just wanted me to type the novel onto the screen. 
and I realized I would have to fight her on any form of adaptation that I possibly wanted to do. And finally I realized, like, okay, what am I going to fight her on? And I realized, like, okay, there's something I have to fight her on. In the novel, the character is just called Mom, mm. and she never names her mother. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you are going to have to cast an actress in this role, and you're going to go to actresses, and you're going to say, we want you to play this character, Mom. And I'm just going to have this character to say mom like if you're not willing to let me do add anything to this novel and you know i could tell this movie is never gonna get made and in fact rebecca stead told me right at the beginning this movie is never gonna get made i just want you to know that before you start writing this adaptation and i'm like okay rebecca i literally was like this is the one fight i'm going to insist on having i'm like mm-hmm. you cannot go into actresses and say i want you to play a character named mom and I have Mrs. To, and whatever like, I, Miranda's last name I was. Know, I know, no, no actress wants to play that. And I was like, I know you don't want me to make any contributions at all to this screenplay. But if I, I, well, I, I said, I don't even have to make the contribution. Why did you bring it up? How Why did you Rebecca just submit the script with the character having a name and not make a big be, federal issue about it? You, because I knew she would absolutely crucify me for having created something for having added a name to this character and right, but just like, have you ever heard of it it's better to apologize and to ask for ask for permission yeah um well indeed you, I, if you're asking for something then there's a possibility you'll get turned down if you just do it then the onus goes on them to be an asshole yeah well i misjudged every part of that situation so um, maybe that was one more thing i misjudged the point is every character is important and if you watch you know, certainly the films of Alexander McKendrick, this could not be more clear in The Man in the White Suit, in The Lady Killers, in Sweet Smell of Success. Every character is important. Every character has their own stuff going on in their own head. And in Sweet Smell of Success, his assistant just has a whole world of stuff going on in her head that is clearly going on in her head that is not being touched on in the movie. You know, oh, that poor woman who is being prostituted has so much going on. So many of the characters. Sweet Smell of Success is in many ways a two-hander, as they say in Hollywood. It's a movie that is primarily about the two characters, the two stars, the only two people, the only two big-name actors in the movie. But it's a movie in which every character is important. Yeah, there is a... Um, and also, this is kind of like good advice for, like, say, sitcoms. You have, like, like for the first like season or two of Parks and Rec, you had Jerry and Donna who are always in the background, just these two random office workers. But then they, they bring them forward and they become, like after all the other characters are kind of established, they, it, they're, they're almost like bringing a queen out late in the game <laughs> of chess. They become like two very, very interesting characters, but they held them in reserve. Uh, and and they, every character is important. And you could see they're acting in very Donna-ish and Jerry-ish ways in the background for these first you know, two seasons or whatever, and then they come forward. It's like, oh, yeah, and they, of course, they, you can't imagine the show without Donna and Jerry by the end, but it's because every character was important. Even at the beginning, they're held in reserve, but then they were brought out later. Um, they seemed very small. They weren't even speaking parts at the beginning. But um, they but were named. They were, yeah, yeah, they so were they, named. there was Donna and they, there was Jerry. They yes. didn't just call them background actor one and background actor two. They exactly. were like, we're going to go ahead. And they presumably cast great people. Yes. Um, they, they, even they're, though they're, they weren't planning on using them yet. Yeah, yeah. Retta was a well-known uh, standout comic. The, the woman who played uh, Donna and uh, uh, the guy who played Jerry was like a, you know, a well-known character. I think a, a, a character actor who got work. Yeah. I uh, Every character is important. I think this is a good one to end on. It is... Always true. It is always important to remember. Always never have. There's nothing that is more humiliating to an actor than to play Toll Booth, taker number two. Um, never never have a character who has number two written after their name. I give the example of one of my favorite cheesy movies from the 90s is Hard Rain. And it's about a heist during a rainstorm in a small town uh, written by Graham Yost, who we've already been discussing earlier tonight. And he... Um, it's just amazing what a wonderful ensemble of 14 people it is, including Betty White and lots of other great uh, character actors showing up and how every character is important in that movie. And it's one of my favorites. And, and even though like you don't, it doesn't really matter that they are interesting characters. Like say in like The Fugitive, all the people who are like helping out Tommy Lee Jones, they all have these very particular characters. They're all like kind of sniping at each other in very characteristic ways. They didn't have to make 
those characters characters. They could have just been the people who are helping Tommy Lee Jones, but they all like by the end you know them all very well, and yeah. it's a much better. There's a point in which like they're they're sitting like in um they're 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 in the same building as Kimball. They don't know it. They're, mm-hmm. they're tracking this, and like one of them is like. It's like, I don't know, it seems kind of hinky to me. And like, Tommy Joe's like, what do you mean, hinky? What, what is that word, hinky? What does that mean? And then, of course, this is the kind of conversation that they, that they have all the time. That's, or, or they that's get, a very James Kennedy type thing to say. Like, <laughs> no, I want to stick on this one word, hinky. Tell me about this word, hinky. That's or, very James Kennedy. Or, or, or the first time that we see uh, Tommy Lee Jones, the, he's like chastising one of his ass- assistants, Poole, because she didn't wear boots. Uh-huh. You know, and he's mothering her, you know, and 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 like, well, and they're kind of bickering about that as they're walking to the scene of this crash. It's so much better because every character is important. Well, I love the line, "Don't let him make fun of your ponytail." Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that movie. It's um, yes, every character is important. You can't have a character named Mom. Every character, you know, and you never know when you're going to be able to. If you have a deep bench, like on Parks and Recreation, it's going to come in handy later. Or if you're going to have like some character you think is a throwaway, like Boba Fett, and then you have three seasons <laughs> of The Mandalorian later. <laughs> and a season of Boba Fett. Don't forget yeah. a whole season oh, of Jesus, Boba Fett. I try to forget. <laughs> Why does everybody forget that? Okay, everybody. That was three epic episodes. I hope you have enjoyed this. We are going to release these much closer to each other than we usually do. This is, I think that Alexander Kendrick came up with these rules. I think to a certain extent we found these useful just in that he is saying what the perceived wisdom is. Is it received wisdom or perceived wisdom? I think it's received wisdom. What is, what is, that makes no sense. Why is it called received wisdom? Because, it, because it's passed the, down the, the wisdom you received from your elders. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but the, the received, you didn't come up with this wisdom yourself. You received it. I see. So he is just, to a certain extent, just listing out the received wisdom that filmmakers sort of glean from film school and from the environment as as my father the arkinson would say lick it off the grass that these are the things that you lick off the grass when you are learning filmmaking and that that we he is giving us the opportunity we need to interrogate these things and to say like wait just a second this is these are the old chestnuts are these actually true and i think we've i think we've had some good discussions about them yeah i mean also like always trying to like make sure that we don't falsely universalize these to all stories right um like these i think a lot of these are very specifically filmic yes very much so okay so all right well let's go ahead and wrap this up this has been an epic series this has been a lot of fun uh it's been fascinating having james here live in person in my house where my children sleep (laughs) here once again where my children are trying to sleep as we wrap up this podcast at 12 43 Thanks so much for coming out, everybody. Uh, we will see you soon. We've got we've we just got contacted by somebody who wants to do an episode with us. That sounds like it'll be a great episode. So we'll uh, hopefully get to that not too long. Yes. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Bride of the Tornado, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.